ourselves focused. But we can't do that by ourselves. Let's ask for God's help. Father God, we recognise uh, all the uh, circumstances that could draw us from our concentration this afternoon. Father, we want to focus on your word. We want to see uh, the ultimate word, the Lord Jesus. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would uh, open our eyes, open our hearts, uh, that this sword of your word might cut us to our hearts, might challenge us. And yet this is the sword that heals, Father. Uh, Would you um, give us grace to see the triumph of the cross, the new life that there is in Jesus. And to live like him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I wonder how much you look in the mirror. I can tell you how much you look in the mirror. It's probably proportional to how much you like what you see. Isn't that true? Uh, Those people who look in the mirror uh, all the time, it's either... For one or two reasons, really, they really like what they see and they're, they're quite keen to get a glimpse of that gorgeous person looking back at them. Or they don't like what they see and they spend so long looking in the mirror because they're covering it up with makeup. That's just the fellas. If you're like me, you probably don't look that much because, you know, it ain't going to change and it ain't getting any better. It's only going one way. But it's like that with the mirror of God's word, isn't it? When we feel challenged sometimes, we don't want to get in there and get stuck in. But God's word is a mirror uh, to look in and to see ourselves clearly in the light of who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus. And therefore, it's a mirror to see the joy that although we're nowhere near what we ought to be, there's always, always, always grace in Jesus. Grace to change, grace to love, grace to follow him in showing that grace to others. So we've just got two uh, questions this morning that help, uh, this afternoon even, uh, that help us think through what it means to look into the mirror of God's word here in chapter 4, to see ourselves reflected in this horrible, horrible man. To see the reality of our own hearts in, in Jonah. So just two uh, questions, and the first one is this, can you see yourself? Can you see yourself? Uh, I've got a tin mug at home, Uh, I've become all kind of posh recently and started drinking green tea, apparently it boosts your metabolism, tastes like nothing, Um, and it's warm for when I don't want to drink coffee, so that's the only, anyway, I drink it all in this tin mug, uh, which was given to me, and it says this, Graham, the fount of all wisdom. Hashtag source of all human knowledge. Uh, you might have guessed that that is absolute nonsense. But, do you know what? Sometimes that's what's written on my heart. When someone tells me I'm wrong, I'm like, have you read my mug? <laughs> Come on. Perhaps you've got a similar thing like that. Perhaps we're all like that. In fact, the Bible says we're all like that at times, aren't we? I decide what's right, I decide what's wrong, I decide how my life ought to go, I decide, God, that you've got it right or wrong in this situation. That's Jonah here, isn't it? Jonah was displeased exceedingly. Flipping heck. 
He was really cross, wasn't he? Uh, in fact, one commentator, uh, a guy called Stuart, I can't remember his first name, uh, said, translates verse 1, this was disgusting to Jonah. So what's disgusting to Jonah? Look back there at the end of chapter 2. Uh, God had saved the Ninevites, which he knew they were going to do all He knew God was going to do all along. That's why he didn't go in the first place. But God had uh, gone in to go. He, he preached that good news and God had saved them and it was disgusting to Jonah. It displeased him exceedingly. He's angry because he didn't get what he wanted. He's angry because he disagreed with God's decision. Just look there, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. This is a bit of a bold prayer, this, isn't it? From a God who's just told people in rebellion against them he's going to smash them if they don't get their head sorted. Jonah suddenly seems quite rebellious. Oh Lord, it's not. Uh, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? I told you so, God. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious and God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Could those beautiful words ever have been said in a more angry tone? God, uh, Jonah doesn't like God's decision. You think he'd have learned his lesson by now, wouldn't you? The storm, the fish, the psalm of verse 2, the fact that he went and told people God had saved him and God saved him. But here's the thing Jonah's problem here is not primarily theological or intellectual. He says uh, in verse 2 and 3, doesn't he? He knows that that's what God is going to do. He's got a good theology of God. He's not a stupid guy. He gets it. It is uh, theological in one sense, but it's not primarily that. Here's the thing, right? Jonah's biggest problem is that he's so wrapped up in himself and his own worldview being right. We're right back at chapter 1. It's all about him. And if you want to see the reality of Jonah's heart writ large, just uh, look there at his interaction with this plan. God says to him, uh, verse 4, Jonah, what's going on? Do you think you're justifying me in this cross? Jonah, like the typical rebellious two-year-old or teenager, stomps out of the room, slams the door, and goes and makes himself a little dent to sulk in. He is off to the garden to eat worms. And he gets this plant in in verse 6. And it shades him. You know, think about today. Think about sitting outside today and just having a bit of shade. It's quite nice, isn't it? It, it It's still warm and it's nice, but you're sheltered, you're not going to burn. And the only time in this book that Jonah is happy is when he sat under the shade of that plant. And then verse 7, he's at, and following, he's absolutely livid when it dies in verse 8 and 9. He's sad and angry about this plant. But do you know what? I'm not sure Jonah was like a member of Greenpeace, and that's why he's so cross about this. You know, destruction of, of, of wildlife, it's not on. No, why was Jonah cross? Jonah was cross because he'd become attached to it because of what it gave him. That shared that comfort. God's making a point here to Jonah. And God's entire point to Jonah here in the raising up of this plant and then smashing it and bringing the heat on 
is that Jonah is more concerned about a weed than he is about people. That's there in verses 10 and 11, isn't it? God says, you, you cross about this plant, which has got no to do with you, really. It's a good gift of my grace. And you're not cross about this city. You're not sad about this city and all these people dying. Jonah's more concerned about this plant than people because of what it gives him. You know, we're no different, are we? In our lives. We never admit it. We probably don't even believe it intellectually. But here's the thing. We always draw the line of sinfulness directly one line below us. Don't we? We always draw the line of sinfulness directly below ourselves. We fall into that legalism which functionally says, Mike, we'd never believe it intellectually, we're good evangelicals. But it functionally says, I deserve God's grace. I'm good enough. I meet the standard. Anyone who doesn't get up to my exacting standards deserves judgment. And then, perhaps one day, we realise with horror that we never hold ourselves up to the same standards we hold everybody else up to. You see... We even see it in our hearts. Maybe you do, I do, when we read this passage, don't we? Jonah sits and watches Nineveh in judgment, rehearsing all the reasons why it needs destroying. You and I sit here and through the Bible sit and watch Jonah in judgment, seeing all the reasons he needs destroying. And more importantly, we're constantly doing it to those around us as well. Because of that, because we functionally believe we're good enough like Jonah and and they're not, we fall into that habit of selfishness, self-obsession, self-absorption. The things and even people who give us what we want are the best thing ever. You know, I love my wife. Bought me ice cream the other week. I had ice cream for months. Tell you what, when she decided that we needed to have a very big discussion at half past twelve at night the other night, I didn't like my wife very much at all. Why? Not because she did anything wrong. I wanted my comfort, my sleep. And she was right all along, by the way. We love the people who give us what we want, but woe betide those who get in the way of what we want. And the people of Nineveh here give Jonah nothing, do they? In fact, they're a very real threat to his people. If Nineveh's strong again, they can come and smash little Israel. In fact, that's going to happen one day, isn't it? The successor of this empire. They're a very real threat to his security, to his comfort. And their rescue and forgiveness by God is not only very, a very real threat to the privileged position of his nation as God's special people, but also to Jonah's legalistic worldview. Let's get it straight again. Jonah wasn't thick. He wasn't some kind of intellectual, theological pygmy. He knew grace was undeserved love and mercy from God. 
But his actions here show that Jonah secretly believed that he and his people deserved God's love and mercy more than the Ninevites did. I can't speak for you, but I I get the hint you're probably the same as me. Not from anything you've done this weekend, by the way, just from the Bible. You know, we're fine with other people forgiving and forgetting when we sin against them. We're fine with other people forgiving and forgetting when other people sin against them. But when we're sinned against... So here's a question. Where are you like Jonah? Who do you hold that grudge against? Who would you rather see receive God's judgment rather than God's grace? Have you ever found yourself thinking that it's unfair that Jesus took someone's punishment so they don't have to? Just going on the internet. Perhaps we're like the villain in the Bond film. We've got our little cat of the grudge we hold against someone. And rather than putting that cat in a pillowcase with some rocks, we sit and we stroke it and we feed it and it grows and it grows. And it grows. And Jonah's here to remind us that that's not Christian behaviour. That sin against us either will be paid for in hell for eternity or has already been paid on the cross. If that's you this morning, this evening, if you're Jonah here tonight, can I say to you, from God's word, in love, let it go. By God's grace, let it go. Or perhaps we do, we're, we're like Jonah in another way. We're really judgmental when we look at other Christians. You know, they don't have their theology right, do they? In that church, I hope nobody gets saved there. We'd never say that out loud, would we? We'd never think that out loud. I hope their church doesn't grow. How can they expect God's blessing or grace or growth when they do that? They'll get what's coming to them. We get told you so, itis, don't we? You brought it on yourself, you'll get no sympathy from me. You'd never catch me being so stupid. We look at other people like that, especially younger people. We were talking yesterday, some of us, about this uh, snowflake generation thing. And I, I spent seven years working with uh, students. And uh, let me tell you, things that students at university do are generally stupid. They, they just do stupid things. You know, they don't seem to use their brains. And, and they do things and I'd be like, ah! And then my lovely godly wife had said to me, do you remember being 18? And what an absolute muppet you were. I was just like Jonah. They were idiots who needed uh, crushing. I was a legend. But like Jonah, here we get a picture of a man who loves God's grace when it's poured out on him and his people. Who would have sung Psalm 103 at the top of his voice. You know, 
Thank you, Father. Psalm 103, verse 10. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. But he hates the idea that God might do to the same to other people whom he sees as the real bad ones. In this chapter, you see, the Lord is showing us that we're just as much, if not more, in need of grace as the Ninevites. Jonah and everyone else. We may not be Osama bin Hitler, but left to ourselves, we're under the same condemnation of God. Dead, lost, and hopeless. This chapter is here to remind us that the Christian life is not some smooth pathway upwards. It's two steps forward and one step back. Jonah, who seemed to have got it all sorted in chapter 2 and 3, crashes back again. The Lord wants to remind us that we're not Superman. To remind us that we're not enough, that we haven't got enough. To remind us, ultimately, we need a better prophet than Jonah. One who is not only willing to tell us the truth of our desperate need of repentance, but one who loves us enough to be overthrown in our place. One who really was angry enough at sin and evil to die. As he took its consequences upon himself. One who was willing to go outside the city. Not to sit like Jonah in judgment. But to take that judgment upon himself. And in seeing that we're just like Jonah. That we're constantly uh, forgetting the gospel. Forgetting our our own need of grace. uh, We see the truth of our desperation and dependence. That we need to be constantly going back to that same cross, confessing our bitterness, our lack of love, confessing our sinfulness and our judgmental anger at others, and accepting the freely given grace of God, which says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. So can you see yourself? Are you convicted of having a heart like Jonah? And if you, ha- if you are, let's ask a second question. If you're not, let's ask a second question. Do you know the heart of God? Because Jonah's anger here is uh, there to show us the depths of our heart. There, and it's there also, though, to show us the outrageous love that flows out of God's heart. Jonah's anger comes out of a disbelief that sinners should receive God's grace. That's we've seen, haven't we? That that's because, on one hand, he has a deficient view of his own sin. He's minimised his own sin in his own eyes. But it's also because, on the other hand, Jonah probably has a better view than we do of the evil of sin and of God's opposition to it in his holiness. He looks at the Ninevites. Remember what he said about the Ninevites? Nasty blokes and women. He knows they deserve condemnation. Perhaps, I don't know, in the wider evangelicalism, whether that's true in our hearts or not, we've lost something of this view of the evil of sin in opposition to God's holiness. We've perhaps fallen in a bit with our culture in thinking that punishment and judgment are probably not that great things. We don't think of God's judgment as right and just, perhaps. 
If Jonah and we need a recalibration to love God's grace to others, perhaps we need a further recalibration to love God's justice. And therefore, to be constantly amazed that he should be a God of grace. You've probably heard that story. Do you remember uh, Corrie Ten Boom, that uh, woman, who, that Dutch woman who helped uh, Jews escape in, um, under the German occupation? And she ended up in a concentration camp and uh, survived, although her family died, etc., etc. And she was a believer, and she was giving a testament in a church after the war. And after the, um, after the service, somebody came up to him and he said, I'd just like to introduce you to, uh, I don't know, Herr Schmidt. Who's the guard of the camp you were in? He's been converted. He's a believer. And I, I forget which book it's in. You'll have to search for it. But Corrie ten Boom says, in that moment I understood God's judgment. That man needed his head taken off. But I also realised that Jesus' head had gone instead. So she embraced him. But what she got first of all, because she'd seen the evil that man had done, she understood that sin needed punishing. But she got as well that God is a God of love and grace. You see, Jonah knew that, didn't he? Look back at verse 2. He knew it from the start. He's referencing Exodus 34, isn't he here? What God says to Moses. He's referencing Psalm 103. It's that, that confession of who God is, slow to anger, abounding in love. Jonah knew it, but there's no in, and there's no in. He knew about it, he knew it was a fact. He appreciated it even when he experienced it himself. We saw that in, in chapter 2 and verse 9, didn't he? Salvation belongs to the Lord. But it wasn't a heart Jonah knew himself. God's outrageous love and grace didn't capture him, didn't thrill him, didn't flow through him, didn't shape his loves and attitudes and desires and actions. You see, it's not only enough for us to grasp what we looked at under our first question. It's not only enough for us to grasp that I'm a sinner and in need of grace, therefore I must share that grace with others. Because if that's the only reason we will tell others about Jesus, that out of gratitude and duty, it's fine as far as it goes, but it will only take us so far. Because when the crunch comes, we'll lose our fire. Because at the end of the day, it's then still all about us. If the only reason we'll share the gospel is because we've been shown uh, grace, because that's what we should do uh, in response to God's grace, we, we won't sacrifice for others. We need to know this heart of God. We need this heart of God, his love and grace for the world, to grip us, to thrill us, to shape us. It has to be the glory of God's grace that drives us, because that's what the world's about. Do you remember Ephesians 1? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined, etc, etc. Why? We sang it this morning, didn't we? To the praise of his glorious grace. Only when we grasp that 
Will we be driven to share Jesus with the world? It has to be the wonder of the reality that God is a trinity of overflowing love that drives us to share him with people. Yes, we experience that partly through the grace God shows to us, but we need to see the reality of the beauty of that grace for the whole world if we're really to sacrifice so that they might experience it for ourselves. You see, I think often in, in evangelism, we often fall into one of two unhealthy camps. We're on one hand a duty evangelist. We thought about this a little bit this morning, didn't we? Uh, you only do it because you're guilty. You know, you're sat there at work or uh, in your family or wherever talking to your mates. And you know you haven't told them about the gospel yet. And so you, you desperately search for any opportunity. And one comes up, he says, uh, oh, did you see so-and-so? And you oh, right, here's a good... Yes, uh, Jesus died for your sins. And so it's forced, it's snatched. You make people projects because you feel guilty, because you're not sharing the gospel with them. It all feels a bit awkward. Or perhaps uh, you fall into the other camp, not a Jewy evangelist, but a reluctant evangelist. You don't want to put yourself out there. You don't want to go outside your comfort zone. You'll find every excuse not to intentionally grow relationships with non-Christians. You'll find important stuff you just have to do. You'll uh, be mates with people, but when it gets on to what you did on Sunday, you kind of uh, tell me you watched a bit of the tennis. You'll develop excuses about the need to disciple others or grow relationships with Christians, which is vital, by the way. Or do extra work. But you won't really tell people about Jesus, and therefore they won't hear. How are they here without a preacher? And that doesn't mean Chris up here on a Sunday morning. Well, it does, but it also means all of us. You see, the answer to both of those unhealthy camps, let's be honest, we fall into both of them at some times as we think about sharing the gospel, don't we? The answer to both those unhealthy camps is not to try harder. Because that's the point of why they're unhealthy. But the answer to the same, uh, to the both is the same. By God's grace, grow this heart. Grow a heart like Jesus. Dwell on verse 2 on who God actually is. A God of grace and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who calls sinners to himself. Come to the cross afresh. Pray that God would change your heart. You see, it works like this. I, I had a mate who was uh, Chinese and he came to this country to study. Um, it was one of those where uh, parents were... Oh, it's on the internet. Uh, parents were quite successful and um, had sent him here to study engineering. But Joseph didn't want to study engineering. Joseph wanted to be a rock star. And he is actually quite good. Uh, and... Guitar was his passion. He was doing a degree in some kind of engineering, but I never once heard him talk about engineering, unless I asked how his course was, and then it was like, yeah, it's all right, it's a bit boring. But ask him about what he did on stage last night. Ask him about how he was learning to be like Matt Bellamy from Muse. It was an easy conversation, because I didn't have to say anything for half an hour. It just overflowed. It was his passion. He'd get the videos out and show me. 
Here's uh, Glenn Scrivener, uh, an evangelist uh, from Australia but lives down south somewhere. He said, what grips the heart wags the tongue. It's good, isn't it? What grips the heart wags the tongue. Or to put it the way Jesus does, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says, we speak out of, uh, sorry, we speak out what we are full of. This is an inescapable fact of human psychology. We are always evangelizing. We are always speaking of what is holy to us. As we are captured more by his glory, so we will speak. Not fluently, not impressively, but genuinely, from the heart. And our passion will communicate more than our eloquence ever could. He's right, isn't he? Speaking to Joseph, I, I, I've got the picture now, which, let's face it, was what I thought before, that engineering was quite boring. But I'd quite like to... I know, I know, Mike, but, you know, you can tell me afterwards. But guitar sounds quite exciting. You see, only when we grasp this overflowing heart of God for the world that we really, truly can say we've grasped the gospel. Only when we see how the heart of Father, Son and Spirit loving each other before the foundation of the world, pouring that love out to share with others, can we grasp why the Father sends Jesus enabled by the Spirit to willingly, gladly take his people's sin at the cross. Only when we are truly amazed that this holy, perfect, gloriously loving Jesus would take upon himself our sin rather than just unleashing God's wrath upon us. Will it ever change and shape us? Will it ever overflow to others? And so we need to dwell on this heart of God revealed in verse 2, revealed in verses 10 to 11. Look and see in there Jesus. The overflowing love he had always shared with his Father and with the Holy Spirit was what drove him thrilled him, shaped his entire mission. Why did Jesus pray, not my will but yours be done in the garden? Not out of some obligation, not out of mere duty. Not because he felt guilty. But out of a heart that rejoiced in his relationship with his father. Out of a heart that rejoiced in who he was, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And because that love took him to the cross, it means we can go to the world. Because as we put our life into the hands of Jesus, as uh, the Spirit unites us to him and cries, Abba, Father, within us as evidence of our adoption into the Father's family. As we experience the love of the Father in Jesus by the Spirit's power, We know this overflowing love for ourselves. And as we dig deeper into this reality, as we experience it and celebrate it, as we rejoice in this love together in all we do as a church, as we start to share it with others, it's then that this love begins to shape and change us. God's overflowing love becomes more glorious and more wonderful as we see it transform people's lives. Do you know one of the nicest sights I've seen in recent weeks is a woman in buckets of tears. Because she'd just heard the gospel preached and she was so convicted. She's not quite there yet. 
do pray for her. And that thrilled us. We've preached the gospel. And you know what? Here's a, a real uh, equation for you. You preach the gospel, people get saved. And here's the inverse. You don't preach the gospel, guess what? People don't get saved. I mean, we've all heard it, haven't we? Preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Bake a cake, if necessary, use ingredients. As this grips us, we become less like Jonah, with a theologically correct understanding of God's heart and hearts of stone ourselves. You see, the love of God in Jesus by the Spirit's power must thrill us. And as it excites as we focus on it more, and as we dig more deeply, it starts to shape our own hearts, and then this overflowing love starts to flow out through us to everyone around. Some of you probably remember Joe Pollard, don't you? Joe Pollard, a lady who, uh, with her husband, went to Eastern Europe to take Bibles and stuff under communism. Do you remember, uh, some of you know the stories, they were there in their camper van, knock on the door, and it, there's a whole story, but eventually the door was ripped open and her husband was stabbed and killed, beaten to death. And uh, I think it was like literally the next day or something from the hotel. She went on Look North by phone, and they, apparently someone just gave her a phone and said, tell us about it. Here's what she said, the next day. I don't feel any malice towards the murderers. I just hope they realise that what they have done is wrong. And I pray that in time they will be born again and so become Christians too. That's the heart of God in action, isn't it? That's the heart uh, that took uh, those, uh, the family of the El- uh, Elliot and uh, Jim Elliot and Nate Satan and all those others back to the jungle. That's the same heart that calls us to go, you to go to this town, uh, this valley. And so God's call to us this afternoon from this passage, grow this heart. Ask God for grace. Dwell on verse 2. Dwell on verse 10 and 11. Come to the cross and pray that as you gaze upon Jesus, God would change your heart. And then by God's grace, go out and start building relationships. Get out there and spend time with real people. Stop growing excuses about it being too much of a sacrifice. Or the fact that you're busy, you are. So, Jesus was busy being worshipped in heaven. And he stepped down to take our place. He became a man. Jesus, the sinless God-man, took the wrath of God upon himself. Not so you and I could become a little holy huddle. But so that he could commission you as a church, us as a church in Spain Valley, the church around the world, to go into the world and make disciples to the praise of his glorious grace. To remember that all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. And he will save his people. Those are our marching orders as we go out into this week. By God's grace. Let's get on. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that
you have lavished this grace upon us. Unworthy sinners, dead in our transgressions and sin, and yet you have made us alive in Jesus. We thank you, Father, that your grace is greater than all our sin. Father, we pray you would forgive us for the ways in which we're selfish, the ways in which we don't want to share the gospel with others, the way in which we hold grudges and become self-absorbed. Father, would you open our hearts to our blind spots and our sin? Would you help uh, this church to help one another see uh, those blind spots? Father, would you give them grace to reach out to a town and a valley happily on its way to hell? Father, would you open the eyes of people in this valley and town and save people to your glory and the extension of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.